Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years in that relationship for 32, and we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. And I've been divorced for almost five years now, and my our daughter is almost 26, and she's thriving and doing fantastic. So today, I have another AANE certified therapist talking with me on the Neurodiverse Love podcast, and her name is Alex, Alex Mansbach. And Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. And I always like to ask the guests, kind of what made you move in the direction of working with adults with autism and couples, neurodiverse couples? And also, what made you decide to go and get the AANE certification? Yeah, great question. Um, So I started out years ago in New York City as um, a clinical social worker, and I did an advanced training, uh, which was two years long in uh, family and couples therapy um, through the Ackerman Institute in New York City. Um, I then went back to school and became a clinical psychologist. And I sort of fell into, you know, this, it was just supposed to, it was just supposed to be, you know, I was doing, I was helping with assessments, earning a little extra money through grad school. Um, I joined up with a private practice called the Center for Assessment and Treatment in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Mm -hmm. And I ended up working with them through grad school and I went back for my postdoc and now I am a clinical psychologist there. And just by the nature of sort of who we see and what um, the owners of the practice specialize in, I'd say about 80% of our clients um, are either on the spectrum or questioning whether they're on the spectrum. Um, uh, And so it it just sort of fell into my lap. I had not had any experience with autism or really neurodiversity at all um, prior to getting involved with this practice. And as I sort of grew as a clinician, I started to see that a lot of the people that were coming to us were teenagers or adults. So beyond the the time of life where you typically think, you know, the developmental stage where you hear about a lot of autism diagnosis sort of in, in, in preschool age, you know, up to up through age sort of 13 to 15. I was mm-hmm. seeing a lot of people after that age. Mm. And I got back into couples counseling. So my primary role is to do neuropsychological and diagnostic testing. Um, again, I'd say probably 75 to 80% of my clients, it's a question of autism. Um, and I got back into couples counseling because that's my true love. Like that's sort of um, the piece that I started out with as a therapist and I have remained you know, very committed to. And again, by the nature of what we do at our practice, the the couples that were coming to see us and asking us for help, either one or both partners tended to be more neurodiverse, Mm -hmm. um, ADHD or autism spectrum disorder, or both of them, you know, were were somewhere on that spectrum. Um, And I really had would did not have that type of experience in terms of couples counseling, lots of experience with couples, not a lot of experience with neurodiverse couples mm-hmm. that brought me back to AANE to get the advanced training. Um, and just, you know, the way things are a little bit different 
when yeah. you're a learner or diverse. Ugh. You know, I, it's so interesting. Thank you, Alex, so much mm-hmm. for that, because it's so interesting to see how folks end up you know, in the world of neurodiversity when it's not something that they themselves experience, a child experiences or a parent experiences. And it's so wonderful to know that the center that you work with does assessments because it's an area, and I don't know what your wait list is. I I can ask (laughs) you that. (laughs) Um, Because I get people contacting me all the time saying they or their partner wants to get an assessment or an evaluation and the wait list is nine months a year cost is just prohibitive or whatever so do you all have a wait list for assessments yeah um yeah it we so we i we have um uh we just hired um a couple of new uh clinical psychologists so hopefully to to eat into the wait list um, me personally, right now, I'm booking in February of 2023. Okay. Um, but there are there's a cancellation there's a cancellation list, and if somebody gets on a cancellation list, there's a high likelihood that they can get in sooner. They just have to sort of move quickly when that slot becomes available. Sure. Okay. That's great. It's great to know. I mean, even though it's a whatever six month wait, you know, there are folks that are willing to wait if they have the right provider to go to, to get the assessment or evaluation. So thank you for sharing that. And then that is work that you're doing and that a large percentage of your clients are autistic. So it's always also wonderful to have resources that are very skilled and knowledgeable about working with autistic individuals and neurodiverse couples. So I really appreciate you sharing a little bit about that. So, you know, I know you have a lot of experience doing evaluations and, you know, I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, but not in any great depth. And those folks that have gone through the evaluation process, you know, I don't hear a lot of couples sharing that. In fact, I don't think I've heard any couples sharing that on anybody's podcast or anywhere else. I've heard individuals sharing the process. But I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about the, the diagnostic evaluation process and specifically if you could talk about what it maybe looks like when that individual is in a, an intimate relationship with another person. So how involved the partner might be. So that would be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I primarily do two different types of evaluation. One of them being a comprehensive neuropsychological evaluation, which I'm not going to talk about, you know, extensively today. And the other one being a diagnostic evaluation, a comprehensive neuropsychological evaluation. People also ask, you ask for, and, and we do diagnose, of course, we can diagnose autism with that. It's just like the name implies, it's hugely comprehensive and it evaluates um, intelligence, academic achievement, language, learning and memory, emotional functioning, attention, um, all, ex- all areas of executive functioning, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a, a longer process and it requires, gosh, about nine hours of testing, a two hour interview, and then a two hour feedback session. And that is um, sort of the, the most comprehensive thing that we do. 
when somebody, and, and that's oftentimes for kids, we don't always, it's much more infrequent that we see an adult saying, I, I want to get every piece of information about like sort of how my brain works and how my neuropsychology, like how my neurological sure. functioning is. More, more often we get adults coming in saying, um, you know, I, I've gone through school. I, I, maybe I'm married, you know, I have friends or maybe I don't have friends, but I have a job. Um, and I just need to know there's something off and I need to know if I have autism mm -hmm. and that's a much more narrow scope, um, of what we're looking for. And that's a much shorter evaluation. It's about two hours of an interview, three hours or two hours, of, two hours interview, two hours testing, two hours feedback. Okay. And what, what would somebody need to know, um, to prepare themselves for the process? What is involved is it a different type of, you know, multiple types of assessments or tools that are used? Are you asking about, you know, childhood history? Are you asking about, you know, different things that are going on in the relationship if they're in a relationship? Can you give us a little bit of uh, detail about that? Absolutely. So with the diagnostic evaluation, um, I specifically, I don't want anyone to prepare for it. Like that's, that is, um, you know, that's, that's not expected. I want you to sort of come in with a blank slate. Mm -hmm. um, what that looks like is in order to start with a diagnostic assessment, and this is set up all through the intake process. Um, I want to speak to the client. So I want to speak to you for probably about an hour just to get your sense of what's going on. Um, and I have a, you know, a whole sort of semi-structured interview that I do. But what's also imperative is that I speak to somebody else in your life. Um, and for most people, it's gonna be a parent because a parent can, if that, if a parent is, is willing and able to participate, a parent can really, is really in a unique position to be the only person who can speak to the intricacies of someone's developmental, um, developmental upbringing. Mm -hmm. And what they look like as a toddler, what they look like as an elementary school student, what they look like as a high school student. And um, that that's sort of the, the second most important person that I want to speak to. Um, if they are in a relationship, uh, either a best friend, um, a sibling, a, a husband or wife or a boyfriend, girlfriend or, or um, a romantic partner, I would like to speak to that person also. Okay. Uh, just to get a sense for what their social functioning looks like and their social cognition and their social awareness um, and, and just get a sense from the outside perspective. And, and I want to be clear that in no way am I trying to invalidate the, the client's experience. Uh, you know, they sort of are the expert on themselves, but it's really important for autism that we not only have a developmental understanding of what their childhood looked like, but also that we have collateral information. Um, you know, so if a client comes in and says, no, I read facial expressions really easily, like it's no problem at all for me. And their spouse says, wait a minute, like that's, you know, they can't read facial expressions at all. Um, right. you know, when, I'm, when I'm frustrated, they always think, you know, it's because I'm anxious and it's never that. So, right. you know, so just getting some of the intricacies from, of their social functioning from an outside perspective. Yeah, that is so helpful. And I've heard, um, and this was my experience, I've heard others say that when their partner went for an evaluation, 
that they were not asked to come in and talk to the evaluator, whether it was a psychologist or, you know, some other helping professional. And to me, that's a red flag because, yeah, um, yeah, you need multiple perspectives. And I know for a lot of folks that are in the free support groups that I run and even the nerdverse couples groups, you know, their parents are deceased, Mm -hmm. you know, they're 50, 60, and I even have some that are, you know, hitting 70. So to have that partner, I love the idea of having a sibling or a close friend that can come in and share, you know, their perspective and what they've experienced in that relationship. So thank you. That That's really helpful. And I think that that will be helpful for our listeners. So after those interviews, are there actually um, assessment tools that are used? Or how does that, what's the next step for that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, in the world of COVID, post-COVID, all of the interviews are done over Zoom. Sure. Um, so, and they're done sort of separately. So nobody's comparing information. I'm getting fresh perspectives from everyone. Um, then we have what comes next, which is the individual will come in and meet with me for a couple of hours. Um, and there are assessment measures and tools that we use, and it really takes clinical judgment and sort of experience in the field to know what to use and when to use it. And what I mean by that is a lot of the autism measures that have been developed, although there are some really wonderful ones coming out and that are in the public domain. So, um, you know, I, I encourage folks to sort of look around. But um, what I'll say is a lot of them are not like independently indicative of autism. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a measure that we give that looks at like I sort of mentioned before, an individual's ability to read facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a standardized measure um, that we, we tend to use qualitatively a little bit more than actually like applying norms and using, you know, a, a standard score. Um, but there are plenty of people with autism who can look at a picture of somebody making a face and be able to read what that person is thinking or feeling. Sure. So, Again, we have to, like, none of these measures do we look at individually and say, yeah, this means autism. Right. Um, Because, again, like, there are so many people who have gotten, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about this in a minute, sort of, there are so many people that have gotten so good at camouflaging, masking, and or using their cognitive skills to sort of apply rubrics and algorithms to understand social dynamics, to understand social cues, to understand body language and nonverbal communication, that the 100% most important thing is the clinical interview and the developmental interview. And I feel like the standardized assessments, there are, there are uh, sort of a handful of them that I use, um, they're just providing a little bit more information about what the social, what the person's social skills look like in action. Again, I think that's so helpful, Alex, because I, I, just like when we're measuring IQ or somebody's measuring IQ, or even when we're looking at whether somebody is the right person for a job, you know, if you're only looking through one lens, if you're only looking at one thing, you can rule somebody out or you can invite them in you know, or say, yes, you have this and, and we can set people up for failure. So I, I love that you're talking about 
how extensive and in-depth this process is. Mm -hmm. And I hope that it's helpful for folks to know that it isn't just a one and done. You go visit somebody for an hour and you're done because this is really important information that you're collecting to make an evaluation about, you know, somebody's neurology and it can impact a lot of areas of their life and you want it to be a good thing. You want it to be a beneficial thing. You want it to be a helpful thing for the individual and their relationships they have in their life. So I really thank you for that. And I guess the last thing I want to talk about is kind of what is the feedback session look like? Yeah. Is it a review of all the results of the assessments? Is it a more a conversation about what this means in their life? Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So feedback sessions are, in my goal, meant to be collaborative mm. um, because First of all, it's not always autism. And that's, you know, that's an important piece to hold in mind that right. it's not uncommon for me to get someone to coming in believing they have autism when in reality, it's actually something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there, are, and um, the way I like to think about it is sort of a Venn diagram where we have the maybe three circles overlapping and we could have one circle be depression and one circle be uh, social anxiety, and the last circle be autism. And there's a lot of stuff that kind of can go in all three circles. Mm-hmm. And what I what I always say is that I try really hard not to diagnose autism. So if there is a conglomeration of symptoms and a developmental history that, and there's, you know, something is, is problematic or not working in the person's life, I try to find, I try to attribute it to something else if I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and when there's no other explanation for it, that's when it tends to be autism. Um, that, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's, it's a collaborative conversation so yeah. that the person, again, because I've heard from folks who've gone in for an evaluation or assessment, they've been given a piece of paper and told to go on their way. And I think that is, you know, so devastating. You know, I think it needs to be a conversation. What does this all mean in my life? How do I use this? You know, how is it a a strength? Is it a benefit? You know, that conversation is really important. So um, do you also then provide resources if somebody wants to learn specific skills, if they want to deal with, you know, their depression or anxiety or any other comorbidities that they might be experiencing? Do your clinicians then have, you know, the skills to work with autistic individuals in those different areas? Absolutely. Um, You know, to sort of go back to your question about what the feedback session looks like and how it's different for every person, you know, I have people come in who are about to go to college and they need accommodations for college. Mm -hmm. I have people that need workplace accommodations. I need people that have, you know, try, I have people that have tried to be in the workforce on and off for the past 10 years and they can't, and then they need something that sets them up for uh, social security disability application. Sure. Um, and then I have some folks that are, you know, they, they just need maybe a couple of recommendations for what type of therapy and, and some books to read and you send them on their way. So it really depends on what the, per, the, the goal of the assessment and what the person is hoping to get, you know, if, if they get an autism diagnosis, what that's going to help them with. Um, we do have uh, a good amount of therapists that work with individuals on the autism spectrum. 
and you know, again, the wait list, right? So right. we have the the wait list for therapy. So it, it's rare in this day and age that I can just say, oh, someone from my practice will be happy to see you. Um, usually I have to provide a, a list of names and, you know, there's not an abundance of people, but I think for the area of the country that I'm in, in the suburbs of Washington, DC, there are a good amount of uh, therapists who are becoming more comfortable and more experienced working with folks on the spectrum. So mm -hmm. they're generally my clients can find someone, um, especially if they're willing to do virtual sessions or they're willing to travel a little bit. So it, we always, I mean, I can't think of a time, there might've been a time, but I can't think of a time when somebody who is either a teenager or an adult or an adult comes to me for an autism diagnosis and is not already experiencing comorbidities of severe depression and anxiety. Sure. Um, so oftentimes they're, they're with a therapist already. Um, oftentimes they've been in and out of psychiatric hospitals, um, in and out of residential treatment. And, and this speaks to, again, like the subtleties of some presentations where they've had five therapists in their life and the, all the therapists have missed it. Right. Um, so again, being mindful of making sure that the person or people or group or whoever that I refer people to have a deep understanding of autism and really understands that experience um, because like, you know, again, in the majority, the, the large majority of situations, if you're on the autism spectrum and you're seeking mental health treatment from a provider who is very neurotypical focused in terms of their um, their treatment plan and, and how they proceed, it's not going to work. I or agree. It's, or it's not going to work optimally. I agree. And actually, it can cause more harm because I think oftentimes, and I hear this and I experienced this with the three therapists that my ex and I went to during our separation, when you don't understand neurodiversity, you may be asking the couple or the individual to do something that is literally harmful to their mental health mm -hmm. and not meaning to, but you're just not aware of how that particular exercise or that particular conversation can actually cause more anxiety, more stress and create more challenges. And so that's what happened in the three therapy. Well, there are more than three therapy sessions, but with the three therapists that we saw. So thank you so much for. And, and yes, I do think in the Northeast, you know, um, Maryland, Washington, Massachusetts, New York, there are a lot more therapists that I've seen who are trained in working with autistic individuals, neurodiverse individuals and neurodiverse couples. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I would love to see multiple therapists who have the, these skills and this knowledge and um, expertise in every state in the United <laughs> States and in every country in the world. So that's going to be my little um, advocacy effort until I leave this earth. So, <laughs> So thank you so much for sharing that. Is there anything else you want to share about the diagnostic evaluation? Before we talk a little bit, I want to talk about gender and autism. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll say this, you know, to sort of close out the conversation is that um, most people, when they come in for a diagnostic evaluation and they, and, and most of it, I mean, when I talk about the standardized measures, it's really mostly, there's some pictures that we look at, things like that, but most of it is um, clinical interview. So most of it is a conversation and my clinical judgment and sort of navigating through that, um, 
you know, using my experience and my, you know, getting a feel for the, the social skills and, and like the, the social presentation in the room. Um, but I would say 99% of people that come in and meet with me, they, at the end of our two hours together, they say something to, something to the effect of, wow, that was not as hard as I thought it was going to be, or that wasn't so bad. Um, it, it really is in, in most cases, just a conversation. And sure, some of these, sometimes these conversations can be very difficult to have. We, we talk a lot about emotions. We talk about difficult things that have happened in the past, but it really is, it, I, I want it to feel low stakes and like the pressure's off. And I really try to meet each person where they're at. You know, um, as a fellow social worker, that's social work 101, you know, <laughs> meeting everybody where they are with a non-judgmental attitude. And I, I think that's a really important point because as I talk and get to know more, as I talk to and get to know more autistic individuals and I speak with more neurodiverse couples, you know, in the beginning, when we start our conversation, you can tell there's so much fear and there's so much anxiety on both partner's part. Um, but I, what I have seen over and over again with the autistic individual is they've been shamed or bullied or made to feel different. And so to go into the evaluation process and know that this is a conversation where you're going to find out things that are going to help in the future, whether it's in employment or relationships or your family or just, you know, everyday daily life activities, I think that's a much more relaxed way and positive way of approaching this. So thank you for sharing that and, and kind of wrapping up that piece. So I know that there are a lot of women that are getting diagnosed, no matter what age, mm -hmm. with a lot of other diagnoses, whether yes. it's depression or anxiety or um, border, border um, personality uh, disorder, yeah, or <laughs> manic depressive or whatever. Yep. And then, you know, something happens, whether they have a child who gets diagnosed or um, a cousin or they watch a video or hear a mm -hmm. podcast and they're like, oh, my gosh, that's me. They are yeah. talking about me. And then they come in to the right professional and are diagnosed with autism or they self-identify. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit because this is changing rapidly. And it mm -hmm. needs to. It's another one of, you know, my soapboxes. I identify as non-autistic, but I definitely have ADHD traits and always have. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I'd be fully diagnosed. I don't think I meet the criteria. But again, the criteria is based, you know, more on men or boys. So let's talk about how you see women who come in or in your experience working with women in the past how things might be different, what are the things that you're seeing might be challenges, and how you're helping some of the women, you know, work through these challenges, because they, they may be very different than, than the men or even the non-binary folks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I will say, though, just as, um, just as a side note, when I say, when we talk about women, I'm also talking about biological females because I have a fair number of transgender men um, that come in to see me for a potential autism diagnosis. And, you know, that can get a little bit complicated, but, you know, 
if they have not, especially if they have not had um, any medical procedures or they have not taken testosterone or they haven't had any medical interventions to aid with transition, yep. their neurodiversity, and by that I mean their ADHD, their autism is going to present as if it, as if they were female. Yes. Um, so sort of holding that in mind that they're getting, that their presentation is quote female, um, but they are not female. Yes. So the, the complexities of that in and of itself, um, I'm just sort of learning about myself because I, it's only been in the past, gosh, two years or so where I've really seen an abundance of non-binary, but biological female or transgender men. Um, I think that's so important. And I haven't talked about this on the podcast, I think at all. And I know, um, you know, my, my daughter is a lesbian. She came out at 18 and she has a lot of friends who are non-binary. She has trans friends. She has, you know, bisexual friends. I mean, you know, across the whole spectrum. And what I see, she's going to be 26. What I see is so wonderful is the acceptance of diversity, yeah. among her peers where I'm almost 60 and, you know, I'm very accepting, but, you know, I have a daughter who has taught me so much. And I think as therapists, as helping professionals, we really need to understand the sexual diversity, the way people identify and understanding the pronouns and all that stuff so that we can be, again, non-judgmental and start where the person is. So I'd love for you to, you know, talk a little bit about what your experience has been with this and what you think might be so helpful for our listeners to hear on this particular topic. Yeah, it, it tends to be women um, and biological females who are highly intelligent, um, who have basically, I, I'm thinking about, I mean, I see it in in girls as young as eight or nine. Um, but you know, the, the abundance of my clients that come in with this presenting issue where they've sort of read about autism, or like you said, had a, a relative diagnosed, or I get a lot of teenagers who see it on YouTube or TikTok. Sure. Um, and they're like, wow, that's me. Mm -hmm. um, and nobody would have suspected it, including their parents. Um, if uh, sometimes the parents, again, they have another child on the spectrum. One of them is on the spectrum. Um, you know, they happen to be in a special education field or something and they, you know, maybe have, have, they suspect, but, um, for the most part, what it looks like in teenagers and women and biological females is a lot of treatment resistant, quote unquote, anxiety and depression. Mm. The, the assessment is sort of the last resort because nothing has been working. Um, and the, and the anxiety and depression can be really, really severe by the time they are in high school or, or beyond. Um, and I think what tends to be unique about their presentation. And again, I don't want to make a blanket statement because I, I absolutely have seen this in men um, as well is that they're, they use their they they're able to from an early age without knowing that they're doing it leverage their cognitive skills to make sense of the social world in a way that is never intuitive but works mm. um, there are great great psychological costs that come at that yeah um in, you know putting depression and anxiety aside always feeling different 
Um, I've had clients describe it as everyone is speaking Mandarin and they don't know how to speak Mandarin. I've had clients describe yeah. it as everybody knows the passcode to something and yeah. they don't know it. Yeah. Um, I've, I've had clients describe it as seeing like everything is a picture and it's a fuzzy picture. Um, it's just, you know, there are ways that women and girls, biological females can figure out what to say to um, blend in to yes. the social to the social landscape, whether it means they attach themselves to a, a best friend who navigates the social situation for them. Um, oftentimes that's not an option and they just experience massive bullying um, and teasing and social isolation. Um, or, or I feel like in, in the area of the country that we're in with sort of the population that I work with, there are lots of quirky kids. Yeah. So oftentimes these, um, women or these biological females can find their, their niche with, um, a group of kids that, you know, may not be sort of neurotypical. Um, but absolutely what it, it's a whole different, it's, it's a whole different assessment procedure, getting back to the assessment. And we're looking for a lot of different stuff because, you know, for example, the ADOS, which is the um, autism diagnostic schedule, which is the, uh, the gold standard of, of uh, autism testing. That's the, that was the way that was developed. A woman who is highly intelligent and can mask their symptoms can, can, do, um, can score in the neurotypical range on the ADOS easily. So we really have to understand, you know, what their experience of growing up is, um, help, you know, asking them to really talk at length about why they think they're on the spectrum, you know, how they navigate social interactions, how they read social cues, their social communication, things like that. Um, so again, like it just looks different than the quote classic autism presentation that we tend to see in, you know, like little boys. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing that. I've had um, a few women in relationships who have come on the podcast. And I remember um, one conversation that I had, the woman, she was trying to find um, a correct diagnosis for her daughter. She thought her daughter was on the spectrum and her and her daughter got diagnosed at the same time. And, you know, I, I've heard that over and over again, where as soon as a daughter gets diagnosed, the mother or the wife might see themselves a hundred percent or, you know, a big percentage of what they see in their daughter, they themselves feel, and then they go for a diagnosis. And so I think, you know, we hear the term masking and camouflaging, and I do think it's easier for women because you can be the silent person in a group and you don't maybe stand out so much where if you're a boy and you're not into sports or you're not into the things that the guys are into and you're quiet, you might get bullied. Right. So, so I don't know if you can give a percentage, but it'd be interesting to hear over the last maybe two years or a few years, have you seen an increase in the number of women coming in for assessments in your practice? Absolutely. Okay. Um, beyond a shadow of a doubt. I also tend to be, I, I'm sort of the one in my practice who primarily works with adults. There are a couple other people who absolutely do it, but I tend to, um, my caseload skews heavily towards teenagers and adults. Um, but 
I'm just thinking back in 2019, it would be rare to even see one woman out of like, let's say I had four clients a month. It would be rare to see one woman. And now most of my clients are women or by wow. Wow. What do you think the reason for the shift is? And and I wouldn't be surprised if you say pandemic, but <laughs> yes. yeah. 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 Um let's see. So I, well, I want to be clear and and say that again, like that's not I'm not saying that my practice, you know, it used to be all men and now it's all women. That's just right. me personally because I tend to work with women. Um, uh, but, or I tend to have the most experience working with adult women. I would say that yes, the pandemic brought out a ton of, it's sort of like crisis mode. Everything boils to the surface. Yep. Any kind of dormant, um, feel, you know, depression, anxiety, anything that people were able to sort of, um, cope with through whatever coping mechanisms they had in their everyday life. When the pandemic hit, that all came to a stop and everyone sort of regressed um, to the point of, you know, how like therapists just became overburdened and everyone's mental health was suffering. Like, absolutely. Things came to the surface during the pandemic. I think that, and, and also holding in mind that not every um, biological female and woman that comes to see me actually has autism, um, which is another piece that, you know, I think has increased the amount of, just people in general, I think teenagers, especially young adults that think they might have autism because it's my, my understanding. I'm not on TikTok um, or <laughs> I don't really go on YouTube, but it's just become much more prevalent on social media for people yes. talking about their first person experiences with either being diagnosed or with the unusual behavior or mannerisms or the sensory sensitivities or things like that, where People are there's there it resonates with a lot of people, whether it's autism or not is a different story, but a lot of people are saying, Well, hey, like, you know, I have those sensory sensitivities, you know, I have overfocused interests, you know, maybe I'm on the spectrum because I kind of feel like, you know, I don't understand the social world very well. Right. Um, so and you know, that leads them to say, Hey, like I, I think I want to see if I if this if I really fit fit the diagnostic criteria. Yeah. And, and I have heard this over and over again in the support groups that I run that for the first time in their lives, you know, they were 24 seven with a partner in the house and with their kids. And it was either beyond overwhelming. They didn't have the coping skills. They had never seen this part of themselves or their partner had never seen this part of themselves. And then, of course, you have free time to go on social media and search and listen and all this stuff. So I think there were a lot of epiphanies for a lot of folks. And maybe, you know, there are so many good things that can come out of this awareness and this knowledge. And whether you self-identify or you have an official diagnosis, I think it is a game changer in your life. I also have seen where some relationships will end because both partners realize that this isn't the relationship they originally got into. You know, the autistic partner may say, I want to be my authentic self. I now am on that journey. And if my authentic self is not the person you married or wanted to be with, then we may need to part ways, you know, and either be friends or date or just go our separate ways. And I feel like that is a healthy thing 
for a lot of couples because I think a lot of them are struggling. You know, they're, they're attempting to mask or camouflage. I think that went on in my marriage and that's not healthy for either partner. Mm -hmm. So can we talk a little bit about what you've seen with um, relationships, intimate partner relationships where the woman is autistic if yeah. there's any unique things or different things that you can share with our audience, you know, for folks that are wondering or maybe you're trying to figure out what's the next step in, in their relationship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think like we've talked about, um, you know, sort of blanket statement aside, I think autism can prevent, can present in women in a very different way um, than in men, especially in interpersonal relationships, which of course, you know, you, when you're in a, a romantic relationship, that's your primary interpersonal relationship. Um, I think that what we tend to see with women who have gone through that, you know, sort of young, young adult, adult, older adult, women who are on the spectrum and have been misdiagnosed for many years, what we tend to see with them is, um, again, blanket statement aside, a lot of emotional reactivity, um, which again, which is why it leads to lots of other diagnoses that other people sort of can come up with to try to label emotional reactivity. But we tend to see a lot of emotional reactivity in, you know, partner relationships uh, when there's a conflict or even when there is seemingly not a conflict. Um, whereas I think in my experience with men in those interpersonal relationships, conflict or, you know, distress tends to lead to withdrawal rather mm. than, um, you know, what you would consider emotional explosions, crying, yelling, slamming doors, things like that. Um, so that's a piece that tends to look a little bit different. Um, again, each couple and each person is very unique. So it's really hard to kind of make generalizations. Um, I think that, again, we because we tend to see women do the majority of the masking and camouflaging, and there's such a high um, comorbidity rate with some real severe depression, low sense of self-worth, um, difficulty with self-esteem, just feeling different, feeling like you're broken, there's something wrong with you. That obviously impacts relationships. Of course. Um, it is really hard to be in a relationship with somebody who constantly feels depressed and feels overwhelmed. And, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for the first six months or the first two years of a relationship for a woman to be um, just so adept at, at masking that mm -hmm. really present as a happy, very socially fluent, um, you know, outgoing, uh, just really sort of able, socially able person. And then when, as they get to know each other more, maybe they move in together, um, maybe they talk about having kids, things like that. Slowly, I think pieces of the mask can come off when you start to see somebody in their own space at 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. Notice some of the unusual behaviors, some of the missing of social cues, some of the difficulty with perspective taking, um, which again, like women who mask can actually be pretty skillful at perspective taking, but nobody, you know, they can't do it a hundred percent of the time in all situations. So when that distress from the comorbid depression, from the comorbid anxiety, you know, rises up and it tends to kind of take over a lot of the 
a lot of the women's um, sort of social fluidity and social skills tend to suffer because, you know, how can we use, how can we leverage our cognitive skills and our adaptive abilities to be, um, to be so, so fluent in the social environment when we're consumed with depression and anxiety all the time. So that tends to lead to isolation, um, problems at work, problems at school, difficulty with friendships, difficulty with family members, things like that. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, if you've met one person who's on the spectrum, you've met one person who's on the spectrum, just like a non-autistic or neurotypical person. But I think one of the things that I think is um, important for the listeners to hear is that, you know, we all deserve to be our authentic selves in our relationships. Mm -hmm. And this is Mona's theory. I do believe that there's so much unintentional pain and hurt and even trauma that goes on in relationships where one or even both of the folks are neurodiverse and don't know it. And so where you might feel like your partner is being blunt and rude, that is just the tone they use when they have had a full day, they have no spoons, and now you're living with them and you hear that tone every day because you weren't with them every day when they came home from work. Right. And you take it personal and it turns into conflict, it turns into an argument, it turns into a fight. The other thing that that I hear from autistic women and I've seen over and over again is um, the sensory sensitivities and even alexithymia when it comes to physical and sexual intimacy and Mm -hmm. not being aware of why, you know, they don't feel comfortable with certain things sexually or physically and not being able to explain it to their partner Mm -hmm. and their partner not knowing what to do. So all these are things that can create challenges that once the partners know they're dealing with different neurology with the help of a professional like you or a third party who can help walk them through some of these you know, communication roundabouts, constant conflict, things that never seem to get resolved, they can both come out of the, you know, helping professional experience being their authentic selves. So I'd love if you, if you want to comment on that, or if there's any other thoughts you have regarding the whole process of being your authentic self in your relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, I want to make sure to just kind of state that there are people that I assume, I actually don't know this for a fact, but I, I, I assume that there are people that come to see me um, for an autism diagnosis. I think with the assumption that if they could just get the diagnosis, like everything will fit into place and it will be better. Um, my relationship will work. You know, I'll be able to keep a job. I won't feel so different. No. Yep. That doesn't work. Right. It's not a panacea. It's not right. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's really just sort of giving you a roadmap, um, on how to navigate and how to proceed, um, in all these aspects of your relationship and, and of your, of your life. Um, but it takes, it takes a lot of work and you don't, if you've been masking for 30 years, you know, you're not just going to, and you get the diagnosis, you're not going to stop masking the next day. 
Right. Um, especially with the way that I think, you know, especially when you think about 30 years ago, the way girls and women were socialized, um, you know, it's still, it's still a priority in our social world for women to act a certain way. And like you said, they can get away with being quiet and they can get away with um, sort of, uh, you know, avoiding social situations. And I think it's harder for boys to do that. But I guess getting back to your question, um, it is important to be our authentic self while holding in mind that we have to be able to respect the other person's wants and needs. Yes. Sometimes those things are incompatible. Yes. And, but, and, and at the same time, but, and (laughs) when you involve a professional who really understands autism and knows how to work with couples, um, if both partners are really committed, if there's a sense of commitment to the relationship um, and, you know, real, really valuing the person as they are a lot of the a lot of the content of those behaviors that are difficult and lead to negative cycles of interactions those can be worked on and those can be improved upon um but that has to i mean you have to both come in with the goal of like i want to make this work i want to figure out a way because i love this person so much this person's important in my life like you know whatever your reason is I want to. I want to make it so that we're able to coexist and we're able to, you know, see the value in each other, and and not constantly be triggered by, you know, behavior X or behavior Y. So I think both couples initially they have to be on the same page. Yeah. That they, of course, they want to live their authentic self, but you know that doesn't mean that they can do whatever they want and say whatever they want at any point. Yes. You know, that's, that's not a functional relationship by for anyone. I agree. I agree, Alex. And I think, you know, and I hear this again and again, you know, folks saying I've been masking for 30, 40 years. I don't want to do it anymore. And, you know, my partner needs to take me as I am or move on. And I think that's a hard thing for couples that have been together for a really long time when you still love your partner very much. I've, you know, talked about this on the podcast when my ex and I sat at the courthouse talking about, you know, where we're walking in to file the divorce papers. You know, I remember one of the questions he asked me, he said, if you knew when you asked for the separation that this is how our our relationship, our marriage would end, would you have changed that? And I said, absolutely not. I said, because, you know, I lost myself. You lost, you were losing yourself. We were toxic and we weren't getting beyond that. It was actually getting worse. And so, and also, you know, he said to me, I need to work on myself. And so, and he couldn't do that in the marriage. And so the reason that I share all this is because I'm happier than I've ever been. I'm not saying that I wasn't happy a lot in our marriage. I was at times, but I think we're both more able to be our authentic selves now. And if you can be that in the relationship and be respectful and be compassionate and, you know, treat each other with kindness and love, fantastic. But if being your authentic self means you're constantly, you know, blunt and, you know, you spend a lot of time on your special interest without putting in time to your relationship or to your family, that's not fair and it's not healthy. So, There is a a balance there. I totally agree with you, Alex. So 
we're we're at the end of our conversation and this has been fantastic and i know it's going to be very helpful to a lot of folks so i would like to end with two things if there's anything else that you um wanted to end like with words of wisdom something that you haven't shared already and then how do people contact you oh my um <laughs> words of wisdom jeez yeah. um or or something else you had in your mind that you wanted to say before maybe yeah. i i shared my thoughts I wish I had words of wisdom because I feel like um, that would be so helpful to so many of my clients. If I could that <laughs> a soundbite, um, unfortunately, no, I, I can't. I will say though that you know, thinking about couples, uh, and this is, gosh, this is pretty much all of my neurodiverse couples that I work with. Sort of switching from my assessment hat to my my therapy hat, um, you know, get again getting the diagnosis, like just because you know somebody is on the spectrum and you know has a hard time with reflective listening and has a hard time with perspective taking and has a hard time making eye contact that doesn't mean that because you know that that's a that's a neurobiological piece that doesn't mean that you no longer need eye contact or you no longer need reflective listening or you no longer need perspective taking um so just going back to what you said about being our authentic self you as if you're if you're the neurotypical partner or if or if you're not neurotypical but you have a partner's on the spectrum i think you have to decide you have, you know a lot of it is in your court to sort of figure out um how much of this can i sort of negotiate how much of this is a deal breaker yeah, and sure. how much of this you know allowing my partner to be their authentic self is something that i can find value in and find support in and and feel like there's empathy there um because if there's, you know, if it's not, if, if it's a deal breaker, it's a deal breaker. Right. I think that that's so important. I think when, when folks understand they're in a neurodiverse relationship, it, it's on both parties to look at what is a non-negotiable. So I'm a very emotional person, always been emotional. That's not going to change. That's how my brain is wired. When I feel something, I feel it and I cry. And I think at times that was very difficult for my ex-husband. So, and he is much more logical and rational and he can see details that I would never pick up in a million trillion years. He can take apart, you know, a computer and put it back together. It might take him weeks to do it, but he can do it and it's better than it was when he took it apart. I will never be able to do that. And so if, you know, one of your partner's um, personality traits, you know, that is neurologically based is something that is a non-negotiable for you, it's, it is, I think it's important to be honest with yourself and your partner, because there's some things we're never going to be able to change. I can't change the fact that I have brown eyes and I'm five foot 10, you know, so and I think that the more honest we are with ourselves, the more honest we can be with our partners. And I think there's a lot of room for growth for both partners. You know, you picked your partner because there was something you really were attracted to. There were things that were strengths that, you know, you valued and loved or cared about. You know, are there th those things still in existence? And if so, how do you focus more on the strengths and the good things and the things that you aren't able to get in your relationship that you want to get maybe from friendships or your outside activities or work or whatever, is that doable? So I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> Thank you.
so so much so if folks want to get in touch with you i know you said you have a wait list yeah but if they want to get in touch with you and get on that wait list either for an evaluation or for counseling or therapy what's the best way for them to reach you so the best way is to go to our practice website which is catonline.com and that is spelled c a a t online.com um or if for those folks who don't who are more inclined to use the phone the number is 240-424-0184 and we are in the suburbs of DC in Chevy Chase Maryland wonderful thank you this has been I- We've talked about so many topics that I've <laughs> never talked about on the podcast. And that's really? what makes this podcast. Yeah. And I've done a hundred ep- over a hundred episodes now. This is what makes this podcast so valuable because people can listen to experts. They can listen to people who are doing this work every day and learn and then reach out to get help in whatever way they need it. So thank you for all the amazing work you're doing. Thank you for the way you're you're helping neurodiverse folks and autistic folks and couples. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise with our listeners. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.